This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Community Life by Laurie Moore, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 1991. Vermont, she said. Vermont, Nick exclaimed, as if it were exotic, which made her glad she hadn't said something like Transylvania. He leaned towards her confidentially. I have to tell you, I own one chair from Ethan Allen. The story was chosen by Roddy Doyle, whose novels include The Commitments, A Star Called Henry, and Smile, which was published last year. Hi, Roddy. Hello. Last time you came on the podcast, we talked about a story by Maeve Brennan called Christmas Eve. What made you think of reading a story by Laurie Moore this time around? Well, she's such a great writer. I'm not sure exactly why her name popped into my head first, but I think actually as well what appealed to me was reading a story by a woman. A few years ago, myself and Laurie exchanged um, emails with links to songs, for example, written for women but sung by men or sung, you know, written for men but sung by women. And it was great fun for a couple of, for a couple of <laughs> days until we ran out of steam. So maybe that was what I had in mind. I remember sending one, the Carpenter's song, Close to You, uh, but sung by Paul Weller. <laughs> it was very, very good. You know, it's a great version. Yeah. So we had, uh, you know, an enjoyable time in avoiding work in this way. And I just thought, well, yeah, uh, you know, it, it makes a certain sort of sense, I don't know, for a man to read from the point of view of a woman and vice versa. So, but she's, <laughs> such a, she's such a wonderful writer. What makes her stories so distinctive for you? She manages to tell a story without herself getting in the way, so to speak. But at the same time, the language sparkles, even though the subject matter may not. And there are always small surprises. Each sentence always seems to me to be a small treat in itself. But the cleverness, and I mean that, you know, as a compliment, the cleverness never gets in the way. And do you think that the community life, the story represents, you know, what she does best? It's a good example. (laughs) Yeah, because it's a desperately sad story in many, many ways. And yet when I was reading it again, I was still laughing in places because it's very, very funny. Right. But in the hands of a lesser writer who knows she's funny or perhaps, you know, he knows he's funny, the story could become a bit of a mess, really, as she looks for punchlines. But Laurie doesn't do that. You know, the Alina says funny things because Alina says funny things. Right. Not because Laurie wants to make her a funny character, if that makes sense. How how hard is it to do you know exactly that to to have a story that's about something quite sad about isolation or um, emotional letdown or betrayal and at the same time have people laugh at it? I don't know is the honest answer. If you're talking, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, that's, I, again, that's well. I think um, you do the same thing sometimes uh, or a similar I, thing. I suppose I kind of do, but um, I always, from my own personal point of view. I always write too much and then pair it back and pair it back and pair it back. And I think maybe the the uh, the, the unnecessary jokes or whatever or the, um, the bit of cruelness that shouldn't be there or the bit of sentimentality that shouldn't be there end up on the floor and the story remains. If, that, if that's mm-hmm. 
that's my practice really, write too much and then take most of it away. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Roddy Doyle reading Community Life by Laurie Moore. Community Life When Alina was a little girl, she had called them libraries, a fibbing fruit, a story store, and now she had a job in one. She had originally wanted to teach English literature, but when she failed to warm to the graduate study of it, its French fried theories, a vocabulary of arson, she'd transferred to library school, where everyone was taught to take care of books, tenderly, as if they were dishes or dolls. She had learned to read at an early age. Her parents, newly settled in Vermont, from Tirgu Mooresh in Transylvania, were anxious that their daughter learn to speak English, to blend in with the community in a way they felt they probably never would. And so every Saturday they took her to the children's section of the Rutland Library and let her spend time with the librarian, who chose books for her and sometimes even read a page or two out loud, though there was a sign that said, Please be quiet, boys and girls. No comma. Which made it seem to Alina that only the boys had to be quiet. She and the librarian could do whatever they wanted. She had loved the librarian. And when Alina's Romanian began to recede altogether, and in its stead bloomed a slow, rich, English-speaking voice, not unlike the librarian's, too womanly for a little girl, the other children on her street became even more afraid of her. Dracula, they shouted. Transylvanius, they shrieked and ran. You'll have a new name now, her father told her on the first day of first grade. He had already changed their last name from Todorescu to Resnik. His shop was called Resnik's Furs. From here on in, you will no longer be Alina. You will have a nice American name, Nell. You make to say the name, her mother said. When the teacher tell you Alina, you say, no, Nell, say Nell. Nell, said Alina. But when she got to school, the teacher, sensing something dreamy and outcast in her, clasped her hand and exclaimed, Alina, what a beautiful name. Alina's heart filled with gratitude and surprise, and she fell in, adoring and mute, close to the teacher's hip. From there on in, only her parents, in their throaty Romanian accents, ever called her Nell, her secret jaunty American self existing only for them. Nell, how are the other children at the school? Nell, please tell us what you do. Years later, when they were killed in the car crash on the farm to Margaret Road, and the Nell who had never lived died with them, Alina, numbly rearranging the letters of her own name on the envelopes of the sympathy cards she received, discovered what the letters spelled. Alina, alone. The word was a body walled in the cellar of her, a whiff and forecast of doom like an early rotten spring. And she longed for the knell that never lived's return. She wished to start over again, to be somehow living coltishly in the world, not someone hidden away behind books, with a carefully learned voice and a sad past. She missed her mother the most. The library Alina worked in was one of the most prestigious university libraries in the Midwest. 
It housed a large collection of rare and foreign books, and she had driven across several states to get there, squinting through the splattered tempera of insects on the windshield, watching for the dark tale of a possible tornado, and getting sick painfully in Indiana, along I-80, in the restrooms of the service plazas named for dead Hoosiers. The ladies' rooms there had had electric eyes for the toilets, the sinks, the hand dryers, and she'd set them all off by staggering in and out of the stalls or leaning into the sinks. You the only one in here? asked a cleaning woman. You the only one in here making this racket? Alina had smiled, a dog's smile. In the yellowish light everything seemed tragic and ridiculous and unable to stop. The flatness of the terrain gave her vertigo, she decided. That was it. The land was windswept, there were no smells. In Vermont she had felt cradled by mountains. Now, here, she would have to be brave. But she had no memory of how to be brave. Here, it seemed, she had no memories at all. Nothing triggered them. And once in a while, when she gave voice to the fleeting edge of one, it seemed like something she was making up. Olina first met Nick at the library in May. She was temporarily positioned at the reference desk, hauled out from her ordinary task as the supervisor of foreign cataloguing to replace someone who was ill. Nick was researching statistics on municipal campaign spending in the state. Haven't stepped into a library since I was 18, he said. He looked at least 40. She showed him where he might look. Try looking here, she said, writing down the names of indices, but he kept looking at her. Or here. I'm managing a county board seat campaign, he said. The election's not until fall, but I'm trying to get a jump on things. His hair was a coppery brown, threaded through its silver. There was something animated in his eyes, like pond life. I just wanted to get some comparison figures. Will you have a cup of coffee with me? I don't think so, she said. But he came back the next day and asked her again. The coffee shop near campus was hot and noisy, crowded with students, and Nick loudly ordered espresso for both himself and Olina. She usually didn't like espresso, its gritty, cigarish taste. But a kind of distortion was in the air, something that bent you a little. It caused your usual self to grow slippery, to wander off and shop, to get blurry, bleed, bevel with possibility. She drank fast, with determination and a sense of adventure. I guess I'll have a second, she said, and wiped her mouth with a napkin. I'll get it, said Nick, and when he came back he told her some more about the campaign he was running. It's important to get the endorsements of the neighbourhood associations, he said. He ran a bratwurst and frozen yoghurt stand called Please Squeeze and Bratwursts. He had got to know a lot of people that way. I feel alive and relevant, living my life like this, he said. I don't feel like I've sold out. Sold out to what? she asked. He smiled. I can tell you're not from around here, he said. He raked his hand through the various metals of his hair. Selling out, like doing something you really never wanted to do and getting paid too much for it. Oh, she said. When I was a kid, my father said to me, Sometimes in life, son, you're going to find you have to do things you don't want to do. And I looked him right in the eye and said, no fucking way. Alina laughed. 
I mean, you probably always wanted to be a librarian, right? She looked at all the crooked diagonals of his face and couldn't tell whether he was serious. Me, she said. I first went to graduate school to be an English professor. She sighed, switched elbows, sinking her chin into her other hand. I did try, she said. I read Derrida, I read Lacan. I read reading Lacan, I read reading, reading Lacan. And that's when I applied to library school. I don't know who Lacan is, he said. He's, well... You see, that's why I like libraries. No whats or whys. Just where is it? And where are you from, he asked, his face briefly animated by his own clever change of subject, originally. There was, it seemed, a way of spotting those not native to the town. It was a college town, attractive and dull, and it hurried the transients along, the students, gypsies, visiting scholars and comics, with a motion not unlike peristalsis. Vermont, she said. Vermont, Nick exclaimed, as if it were exotic, which made her glad she hadn't said something like Transylvania. He leaned towards her, confidentially. I have to tell you, I own one chair from Ethan Allen. You do? She smiled. I won't tell anyone. Before that, however, I was in prison and didn't own a stick. Really? She asked. She sat back. Was he telling the truth? As a girl, she'd been very gullible. But she had always learned more that way. I went to school here, he said, in the sixties. I bombed a warehouse where the military was storing research supplies. I got twelve years. He paused, searching her eyes to see how she was doing, how he was doing. Then he fetched back his gaze, like a piece of jewellery he'd merely wanted to show her, quick. There wasn't supposed to be anyone there. We'd checked it all out in advance. But this poor asshole called Lawrence Sperry, Larry Sperry, Christ, can you imagine having a name like that? Sure, said Alina. Nick looked at her suspiciously. He was in there, working late. He lost a leg and an eye in the explosion. I got the federal pen in Winford. Attempted murder. The thick coffee coated his lips. He had been looking steadily at her, but now he looked away. Would you like a bun? asked Alina. I'm going to go get a bun. She stood, but he turned and gazed up at her with such disbelief that she sat back down again, sloppily, side-saddle. She twisted forward, leaned into the table. I'm sorry, is that all true, what you just said? Did that really happen to you? What? His mouth fell open. You think I'd make that up? It's just that, well, I work around a lot of literature, she said. Literature, he repeated. She touched his hand. She didn't know what else to do. Can I cook dinner for you some night, tonight? There was a blaze in his eye, a concentrated seeing. He seemed for a moment to be able to look right into her, to know her in a way that was uncluttered by actually knowing her. He seemed to have no information or misinformation, only a kind of photography, factless but true. Yes, he said, you can. Which is how he came to spend the evening, beneath the cheap stained-glass lamp of her dining room, its barroom red, its Schlitz Tiffany light and then to spend the night and not leave. Alina had never lived with a man before. Except my father, she said, 
and Nick studied her eyes, the streak of blankness in them, when she said it. Though she had dated two different boys in college, they were the kind who liked to leave early, or eat breakfast without her, at smoky greasy spoons, to sit at the counter with large men in blue windbreakers, read the paper, get their cups refilled. She had never been with anyone who had stayed, anyone who had moved in his box of tapes, his Ethan Allen chair, anyone who had had lease problems at his old place. I'm trying to bring this thing together, he said, holding her in the middle of the afternoon. My life, the campaign, my thing with you. I'm trying to get all my birds to land in the same yard. Out the window there was an afternoon moon like a golf ball, pocked and stuck. She looked at the calcified egg of it, its coin face, its blue neighbourhood of nothing. Then she looked at him. There was the pond life again in his eyes and in the rest of his face a hesitant, warm stillness. Do you like making love to me? she asked, at night, during a thunderstorm. Of course. Why do you ask? Are you satisfied with me? He turned toward her, kissed her. Yes, he said. I don't need a show. She was quiet for a long time. People are giving shows? The rain and wind rushed down the gutters, snapped the branches of the weak trees in the side yard. He had her inexperience and self-esteem in mind. At the movies, at the beginning, he whispered, 20th Century Fox, baby, that's you. During a slapstick part, in a library where card catalogues were upended and scattered wildly through the air, she broke into a pale cold sweat, and he moved toward her, hit her head in his chest, saying, don't look, don't look. At the end they would sit through the long credits. Gaffer, best boy, key grip. That's what we need to get, he said. A grip? Yes, she said, and a negative cutter. Other times he encouraged her to walk around the house naked. If you got it, do it, he smiled, paused, feigned confusion. If you do it, have it. If you flaunt it, do it. If you have it, got it, she added. If you say it, mean it and he pulled her towards him like a dancing partner with soft shoes and a smiling mouth of love. But too often she lay awake, wondering. There was something missing. Something wasn't happening to her. Or was it to him, while all through the summer, thunderstorms set the sky on fire as she lay awake listening for the train sound of a tornado that never came, although the lightning ripped open the night and the trees were lit like things too suddenly remembered then left indecipherable again in the dark. You're not feeling anything, are you? he finally said. What's wrong? I'm not sure, she said cryptically. The rainstorms are so loud in this part of the world. The wind from a storm blew through the screens and caused the door to the bedroom to slam shut. I don't like a door to slam, she whispered. It makes me think someone is mad. At the library, there were Romanian books coming in. Alina was to skim them, read them just enough to proffer a brief description for the catalogue listing. It dismayed her that her Romanian was so weak, that it had seemed almost to vanish, a mere handkerchief in a stairwell, and that daily now another book arrived to reprimand her. She missed her mother the most. On her lunch break, she went to Nick's stand for a frozen yoghurt. 
He looked tired, bedraggled, his hair like sprockets. You want the Sperry Cherry or the Lemon Bomber, he asked. These were his joke names, the ones he threatened really to use some day. How about apple, she said. He cut up an apple and arranged it in a paper dish. He squeezed yoghurt from a chrome machine. There's a fundraiser tonight for the Teetlebaum campaign. Oh, she said. She had been to these fundraisers before. At first she had liked them. Glimpsing corners of the town she would never have seen otherwise. Nick leading her out into them. Nick knowing everyone. So her life seemed filled with possibility. With hopefulness. But finally she felt the events were too full of dreary, glad-handing people talking incessantly of their camping trips out west. They never really spoke to you. They spoke toward you. They spoke at you. They spoke on you, near you. They believed themselves crucial to the welfare of the community. They didn't read books. At least they're contributors to the community, said Nick. At least they're not sucking the blood of it. Lapping, she said. What? Gnashing and lapping, not sucking. He looked at her in a doubtful, worried way. I looked it up once, she said. Whatever, he scowled. At least they care. At least they're trying to give something back. I'd rather live in Russia, she said. I'd be back around ten or so, he said. You don't want me to come? In truth, she wasn't very impressed with Ken Teetlebaum. Perhaps Nick had figured this out. Though Ken had the support of the local leftover left, there was something fatuous and vain about him. He tended to do little isometric leg exercises while you were talking to him. Often he took out a Woolworths photo of himself and showed it to people. Look at this, he'd say. This was back when I had long hair, can you believe it? And people would look and see a handsome teenaged boy who bore only a slight resemblance to the puffy Ken Teetlebaum of today. Don't I look like Eric Clapton? Eric Clapton would never have sat in a Woolworths photo booth like some high school girl, Alina said, in the caustic blurt that sometimes afflicts the shy. Ken looked at her in a laughing, hurt sort of way, and after that he stopped showing the photo around. You can come if you want to. Nick reached up, smoothed his hair, and looked handsome again. Meet me there. The fundraiser was in the upstairs room of a local restaurant called Duchess. She paid ten dollars, went in, and ate a lot of raw cauliflower and hummus before she saw Nick back in a far corner talking to a woman in jeans and a brown blazer. She was the sort of woman that Nick might twist around to look at in restaurants. Her fiery auburn hair cut bluntly in a page boy. She had a pretty face, but the hair was too severe, too separate and tended to. Alina herself had long disorganised hair, and she wore it pulled back messily in a clip. When she reached up to wave to Nick, and he looked away without acknowledging her, back towards the Auburn page boy, she kept her hand up and moved it back to fuss with the clip. She would never fit in here, she thought, not among these jolly activist clerk types. She preferred the quiet poet clerks of the library. They were delicate and territorial, intellectual and physically unwell. They sat around at work, thinking up Tom Swifties. I have to go to the hardware store, he said wrenchingly. Would you like a soda, he asked sprightly. They spent weekends at the Mayo Clinic, 
An amusement park for hypochondriacs, said a cataloguer named Sarah. A cross between Lourdes and the new price is right, said someone else named George. These were the people she liked, the kind you couldn't really live with. She turned her head towards the ladies' room and bumped into Ken. He gave her a hug hello, then whispered in her ear, You live with Nick. Help us think of an issue. I need another issue. I'll get you one at the issue store, she said, and pulled away as someone approached them with a heartily extended hand and a false booming, Here's the man of the hour. In the bathroom she stared at her own reflection. In an attempt at extroversion, she had worn a tunic with large slices of watermelon depicted on the front. What had she been thinking of? She went into the stall and slid the bolt shut. She read the graffiti on the back of the door. Anita loves David S. Christ plus Diana W. It was good to see that even in a town like this, people could love each other. Who were you talking to? Alina asked Nick later at home. Who? Who do you mean? The one with the plasticine hair. Oh, Aaron. She does look like she does something to her hair. It looks like she hennas it. It looks like she tacks it against the wall and stands underneath it. She's head of the Bear Corners Neighbourhood Association. Come September, we're really going to need her endorsement. Alina sighed, looked away. It's the democratic process, said Nick. I'd rather have a king and queen, she said. The following Friday, the night of the fish fry fundraiser at the Labour Temple, was the night Nick slept with Aaron of the Bear Corners Neighbourhood Association. He arrived back home at seven in the morning and confessed to Alina, who, when Nick hadn't come home, had downed half a packet of Dramamine to get to sleep. I'm sorry, he said, his head in his hands. It's a sixties thing. A sixties thing? Alina was fuzzy, zonked from the Dramamine. You get all involved in a political event. You find yourselves sleeping together. She's from that era too. It's also that, I don't know, she just seems to really care about her community. She's got this reaching expressive side to her. I got caught up in that. He was sitting down, leaning forward on his knees, talking to his shoes. The electric fan was blowing on him. His hair was moving gently, like weeds in water. A sixties thing, Alina repeated. A sixties thing, what is that? Like, easy to be hard. It was the song she remembered best. But now something switched off in her. The bones in her chest hurt. Even the room seemed changed, brighter and awful. Everything had fled her, run away to become something else. She started to perspire under her arms and her face grew hot. You're a murderer, she said. That's finally what you are. That's finally what you'll always be. She began to weep so loudly that Nick got up, closed the windows. Then he came back and held her. Who else was there to hold her? And she held him too. Nick bought Helena a large garnet ring, a cough drop set in brass. He did the dishes ten days in a row. She had a tendency to go to bed right after supper and sleep heavily, needing the escape. She had become afraid of going out, restaurants, stores, the tension in her shoulders, the fear gripping her face when she was there, as if people knew she was a foreigner and a fool. And for fifteen additional days he did the cooking and shopping. 
His car was always parked on the outside of the driveway and hers was always in first, close, blocked off, as if to indicate who most belonged to the community, to the world, and who most belonged tucked away from it in a house, perhaps in bed, perhaps asleep. You need more life around you, said Nick, cradling her, though she'd gone stiff and still. His face was plaintive and sun-tanned, the notes and varnish of a violin. You need a greater sense of life around you. Outside there was the old rot smell of rain coming. How have you managed to get a suntan when there's been so much rain, she asked. It's summer, he said. I work outside, remember? There are no sleeve marks, she said. Where are you going? She had become afraid of the community. It was her enemy, other people, other women. She had, without realising it at the time, learned to follow his gaze, learned to know his lust, and when she did go out, to work at least, his desires remained memorised within her. She looked at the attractive women he would look at. She turned to inspect the face that went with every page-boy haircut she saw from behind and passed in her car. She looked at them furtively or squarely, it didn't matter. She appraised their eyes and mouths and wondered about their bodies. She had become him. She longed for these women. But she was also herself, and so she despised them. She lusted after them, but she also wanted to beat them up. A rapist. She had become a rapist, driving to work in a car. But for a while it was the only way she could be. She began to wear his clothes. A shirt, a pair of socks. To keep him next to her, to try to understand why he had done what he'd done. And in this new empathy, in this pants roll, as if in an opera, she thought she understood what it was to make love to a woman, to open the hidden underside of her, a secret food, to thrust yourself up in her, to feel her arching and thrashing like a puppet, to watch her later when she got up and walked around without you, oblivious of the injury you'd done her, you'd surely done her. How could you not love her, gratefully, marvelling, she was so mysterious, so recovered, an unshared thought enlivening her eyes. You wanted to follow her forever. A man in love. That was a man in love, so different from a woman. A woman cleaned up the kitchen. A woman gave and hid, gave and hid, like someone with a may basket. Alina made an appointment with a doctor. Her insurance covered her only if she went to the university hospital, so she made an appointment there. I've made a doctor's appointment, she said to Nick, but he had the water running in the tub and didn't hear her. To find out if there's anything wrong with me. When he got out, he approached her with nothing on but a towel. He pulled her close to his chest and lowered her to the floor, right there in the hall by the bathroom door. Something was swooping back and forth in an arc above her. Mayday, mayday, she froze. What was that? She pushed him away. What? He rolled over on his back and looked. Something was flying around in the stairwell. A bird. A bat, he said. Oh my God, cried Alina. The heat can bring them out in these old rental houses, he said, standing and re-wrapping his towel. Do you have a tennis racket? She showed him where it was. I've only played tennis once, she said. Do you want to play tennis sometime? but he proceeded to stalk the bat in the dark stairwell. Now don't get hysterical, he said. I'm already hysterical. Don't get there, he shouted, and she heard the thwack of the racket against the wall and the soft drop of the bat to the landing. 
She suddenly felt sick. Did you have to kill it? She said. What did you want me to do? I don't know. Capture it? Rough it up a little? She felt guilty, as if her own loathing had brought about its death. What kind of a bat is it? She tiptoed up to look, to try to glimpse its monkey face, its cat teeth, its pterodactyl wings, like beet leaves. What kind? Is it a fruit bat? Looks pretty straight to me, said Nick. With his fist he tapped Alina's arm lightly, teasingly. Will you stop? Maybe it's a brown bat. It's not a vampire bat, is it? I think you have to go to South America for those, he said. Take your platform shoes. She sank down on the steps, pulled her robe tighter. She felt for the light switch and flicked it on. The bat, she could see now, was small and light-coloured, its wings folded in like a packed tent. A mouse with backpacking equipment. It had a sweet face, like a deer's, though blood drizzled from its head. It reminded her of a cat she'd seen once as a child, shot in the eye with a BB. I can't look any more, she said, and went back upstairs. He appeared a half hour later, standing in the doorway. She was in bed, a book propped in her lap, a biography of a French feminist, which she was reading for the hairdo information. I had lunch with Aaron today, he said. Alina stared at the page. Snoods, turbans and snoods. You could go for days in a snood. Why? A lot of different reasons. For Ken, mostly. Aaron's still head of the Neighbourhood Association and he needs her endorsement. I just wanted to let you know. Listen, you've got to cut me some slack. Alina grew hot in the face again. I've cut you some slack, she said. I've cut you a whole forest of slack. A whole global slack forest has been cut for you. She closed the book. I don't know why you cavort with these people. They're nothing but a bunch of clerks. He'd been trying to look pleasant, but now he winced a little. Oh, I see, he said. Miss High-Minded. You whose father made his living off furs. Furs! He took two steps towards her, then turned and paced back again. I can't believe I'm living with someone who grew up on the proceeds of tortured animals. She was quiet. This lunge at moral fastidiousness was something she'd noticed a lot in the people around here. They were not good people. They were not kind. They played around and lied to their spouses, but they recycled their newspapers. Don't drag my father into this. Look, I've spent years of my life working for peace and free expression. I've been in prison already. I've lived in a cage. I don't need to live in another one. You and your free expression. You who can't listen to me for two minutes. Listen to you what? Listen to me when I... Here she bit her lip a little. When I tell you that these people you care about, this hateful Aaron what's-her-name, they're just small, awful, nothing people. So they don't read enough books, he said slowly. Who the fuck cares? The next day, Nick was off to a meeting with Ken at the Senior Citizens Association. The host from Jeopardy was going to be there, and Ken wanted to shake a few hands, sign up volunteers. The host from Jeopardy was going to give a talk. I don't get it, Alina said. I know. Nick sighed, the pond life threading water in his eyes. But, well, it's the American way. He grabbed his keys, and the look that quickly passed over his face told her this. She wasn't pretty enough.
I hate America, she said. Nonetheless, he called her at the library during a break. She'd been sitting in the back with Sarah, thinking up Tom Swifties, her brain ready to bleed through her ears when the phone rang. You should see this, he said. Some old geezer raises his hand. I call on him, and he stands up, and first thing he says is, I had my hand raised for ten whole minutes, and you kept passing over me. I don't like to be passed over. You can't just pass over a guy like me, not at my age. Alina laughed, as Nick wanted her to. This hot dog's awful, she said frankly. We've got all these signs up that say Tietelbaum for tort reform. Sounds like a Wallace Stevens poem, she said. Yeah, I don't know what I expected, but the swirl at this whole event has not felt right. She's a real dog, he said cattily. She was quiet, deciding to let him do the work of his call. Do you realise that Ken's entire softball team just wrote a letter to the star, calling him a loudmouth and a cheat? Well, she said, what can you expect from a bunch of grown men who pitch on their hand? There was some silence. I care about us, he said finally. I just want you to know that. OK, she said. I know I'm a pain in the ass to you, he said. But you're an inspiration to me. You are. I like a good sled dog, she said huskily. Thank you for just... for saying that, she said. I just sometimes wish you'd get involved in the community, help out with the campaign, give of yourself. Connect a little with something. At the hospital, Alina got up on the table and pulled the paper gown tight around her, her feet in the stirrups. The doctor took a plastic speculum out of a drawer. Anything particular seemed to be the problem today, asked the doctor. I just want you to look and tell me if there's anything wrong, said Alina. The doctor studied her carefully. There's a class of medical students outside. Do you mind if they come in? Excuse me? You know this is a teaching hospital, she said. We hope that our patients won't mind contributing to the education of our medical students by allowing them in during an examination. It's a way of contributing to the larger medical community, if you will. But it's totally up to you. You can say no. Alina clutched at her paper gown. There's never been an accident, she said recklessly. How many of them are there? The doctor smiled quickly. Seven, she said, like dwarfs. They'll come in and do what? The doctor was growing impatient, looked at her watch. They'll participate in the examination. It's a learning visit. Alina sank back down on the table. She didn't feel that she could offer herself in this way. You're only average, he said meanly. All right, she said. OK. Take a bow, he said sternly. The doctor opened the door and called down the corridor. Class! They were young, more than half of them men, and they gathered around the examination table in a horseshoe shape, looking slightly ashamed, sorry for her, no doubt, the way art students sometimes felt sorry for the shivering model they were about to draw. The doctor pulled up a stool between Alina's feet and inserted the plastic speculum, the stiff, widening arms of it uncomfortable, embarrassing. Today we will be doing a routine pelvic examination, the doctor announced loudly, and then she got up again, went to a drawer and passed out rubber gloves to everyone. Alina went a little blind. A white light, starting at the centre, spread to the black edges of her sight. 
One by one, the hands of the students entered her or pressed on her abdomen, felt hungrily, innocently, for something to learn from her, in her. She missed her mother the most. Next, the doctor was saying, and then again, all right, next. Alina missed her mother the most. But it was her father's face that suddenly loomed before her now, his face at night in the doorway of her bedroom, coming to check on her before he went to bed his bewildered face horrified to find her lying there beneath the covers, touching herself and gasping, his whispered, Nell, are you okay? And then his vanishing, closing the door loudly to leave her there, finally forever, to die and leave her there, feeling only her own sorrow and disgrace, which she would live in as if it were a coat. There were rubber fingers in her, moving, wriggling around, but not like the others, she sat up abruptly and the young student withdrew his hand, moved away. He didn't do it right, she said to the doctor. She pointed at the student. He didn't do it correctly. All right then, said the doctor, looking at Alina with concern and alarm. All right. You may all leave, she said to the students. The doctor herself found nothing. You are perfectly normal, she said. But she suggested that Alina take vitamin B, and listen quietly to music in the evenings. Alina staggered out through the hospital parking lot, not finding her car at first, and then, when she found it, strapping herself in tightly, as if she were something wild. She went back to the library and sat at her desk. Everyone had gone home already. In the margins of her notepad she wrote, Alone as a book, alone as a desk, alone as a library, alone as a pencil. Alone as a catalogue, alone as a number, alone as a notepad. Then she too left, went home, made herself tea. She felt separate from her body, felt herself dragging it up the stairs as if it were a big handbag, its leathery hollowness something you could cut up and give away, stick things in. She lay between the sheets of her bed, sweating, perhaps from the tea. The world felt over to her, used up, off to one side. There were no more names to live by. One should live closer. She had lost her place, as in a book. One should live closer to where one's parents were buried. Waiting for Nick's return, she felt herself grow dizzy, float up toward the ceiling, and look down on the handbag. Tomorrow she would get an organ donor's card, an eye donor's card, as many cards as she could get. She would show them all to Nick. Nick! Look at my cards. And when he didn't come home, she remained awake through the long night, through the muffled thud of a bird's hurling itself against the window, through the thunder approaching and leaving like a voice, through the Frankenstein light of the storm. Over her house, in lieu of stars, she felt the bright heads of her mother and father searching for her, their eyes beamed down from the sky. Oh, there you are, they said. Oh, there you are. But then they went away again, and she lay waiting, fist in her spine, for the grace and fatigue that would come, surely it must come, of having given so much to the world. That was Roddy Doyle reading Community Life by Laurie Moore. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 1991 and was included in her collection Birds of America, which was published by Knopf in 1998. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Roddy, I was reading an interview with Laurie Moore where she said stories are interested in those crisis moments in people's lives when there's a break in communication. What do you think would be the sort of essential break in this story? Oh, just that realization, really, that having found her man, he's not the man. And the alternative isolation is not at all warm or inviting. So it's uh, it's that dilemma, isn't it? Right. Two, two black holes, really. Uh, that's what makes it quite bleak. Yeah. Do you think that she ever actually believed he was her man? Good question. Um, <laughs> she wanted to believe it, I think. Mm-hmm. She wanted to believe it. Of course, it's easy for us looking down on the page to see that he's a bit of a git. <laughs> <laughs> quite, a, quite a lot of one in some I'm, ways. I'm inclined yeah. to think all the male characters <laughs> are, are going to be unworthy of her, you know. Yeah, it could be a bit of uh, wishful thinking on her part. But, um, you know, there is that bit of magic when, she, you know, when he comes to st- he comes to dinner and stays and the only other two men who have been in that position didn't stay. Right. They wanted to leave early and live a different life without her. Mm-hmm. But he stays. And that must have been, well, exciting to say the least and full of other possibilities. So you can, yeah, you can, you know, to be fair to her and maybe to be fair to him as well, you can see why this went on for a while. Yeah. I mean, she's had so many sort of displacements in her life. She First she moves from, mm. from Transylvania to Vermont and then Vermont to the Midwest she starts out with yeah. a family. She loses her family very abruptly. And also loses her language. Right, right. Which is an extraordinary thing, really, you know. And I think what Laurie does as well is that, you know, when when Alina speaks, there's a certain almost translated nature to what she says. Or, you know, it's quite arresting, some of the statements she makes, as if she's assembling the word blocks in a way that's slightly different to somebody who had grown up with the English language. It's very subtle. Yeah, it might be really, really good. Must be quite difficult to write that as a as a fluent American. <laughs> yes, yeah, but she achieves it. Yeah. And then you have you know Alina, who's in her second language, concocting these Tom Swifties and yeah. making anagrams of her name, and I suppose trying to make herself at home in English. 
Yes, I suppose so. I, I had never heard of the phrase Tom Swifty before. I didn't know what, you know, when I read the story first when it came out in the book in the late 90s, I, I didn't know what a Tom Swifty was. <laughs> um, one or two would be quite entertaining, but to be in the company of people in a room at lunchtime who do nothing but compose them must... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a worse life, but I, I find it difficult to imagine. <laughs> And yet, so that that would make um, uh, the boyfriend a, a, a more attractive prospect as well. The fact that he doesn't spend all day composing these things, right? So Alina has to move back and forth between these two sort of um, social worlds. One is one mm. is her group of dysfunctional librarians who who are in a way her community, and then the the other group is this group of political outreach workers, you know, <laughs> who don't read books and, and whom she finds really boring and, and pretentious. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think she fits into either group? She clearly fits into the group of librarians more. Mm. You know, she's quite happy there in their linguistic world, their clever world, really. Yeah. And I suppose it's not a demanding, it demands nothing of her, no questions to answer, which right. is probably not healthy. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, the political world or that side of the political world, I find it hard to accept that none of them has ever read a book, ever. <laughs> <laughs> there must be one of them in that room. Yeah, it's quite funny <laughs> that when, when Nick turns up at the library, he's just looking for statistics, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't actually want to check something yeah, out. Yeah, it's the first time he's been in a library since he was 18. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you'd think with, with 12 years in prison, he maybe would have got some reading done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine if I was being thrown into the chokey for um, 12 years, I'd be thinking, well, at least I can reread Dickens, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> read one or two of the Dostoevsky books I never got round to, you know. So yeah. it's not without its attractions, but uh, no, God knows what he did for the 12 years. <laughs> so... Laurie does something, you know, very funny. There's that great line with uh, in the story about moral fastidiousness and how all these people are lying and cheating on their partners, but at, you know, at least they recycle. <laughs> um, you know, Nick is is set up as this sort of pinnacle of community life, and yet he almost killed someone. He cheats on his girlfriend, and he he kind of nags at her to do more outreach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having maimed somebody, he still manages to somehow achieved the high moral ground that the guy had no right to be in that building in the first place you know, <laughs> therefore it's his own fault and he had a silly name you know yes yeah so some again <laughs> deserved to be slapped around for his silly name and then also um the uh you know the being unfaithful thing is is uh, you know it's all it's a, it's a prison you know it's a 60s thing it, he, the freedom he's been in prison once he doesn't want to be in prison again so within you know, one breath, really, he asks for forgiveness and then explains why it is that he doesn't need to be forgiven. Yeah, denies all wrongdoing mm. um, and actually manages to say that this other woman is more appealing because she gives more back. You know? Yes, well, <laughs> whatever it is, she gives back. You She's, know? <laughs> you know, she represents the Neighborhood Association and that's something. Yeah. Um, and Alina's anger captured in the description of the woman's hair, I just think, is absolutely hilarious. You know, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. What do you make of that moment where Alina's kind of 
inhabiting Nick's Nick's uh, sexual drive. You know, she's she's looking at women and and thinking about what it would be to desire them. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's quite extraordinary. I think it's really really um, it's it's almost it's difficult to read, but at the same time utterly absorbing. And then that awful word rapist, you know. Yeah. And the way it's there by itself in one paragraph, you know, a one sentence paragraph by itself. Um, easy to avoid, I would have thought, you know, if you were doing an edit and you were wondering, mm, I might have an easier <laughs> life if I leave this out, you right. know. Or maybe but it's too that, extreme, but, but. Yeah, but then again, that's one of the reasons why I read the story, because it's there. Yeah. And um, again, it's her her attempt to. I don't know, look at the world from the other side of the table. That's a very bland way of expressing it. But it is, it does make extraordinary reading. It's really powerful, really, really powerful. And um, just that really, really, really powerful and brave. I I don't like using the word brave too often when it comes to writing, you know. And when I see see a blurb on the back of a book saying this is a brave book, Mm. my reaction generally is no, it isn't. You know, it's just a book. But I do think to, to an extent the way... Uh, Laurie puts down that section and the way it's done and the the way it's presented on the page is brave because yeah. um, it could the story could have survived without it really but it just makes it uh, that bit stronger as she you know it's again she's trying to understand trying to break through that membrane somehow of mystery that you know I suppose because it's her second language and you know, she misses her parents and uh, she's, what would you say, there's no anchor really. That it, It's just right. that attempt to see what he sees. Do you know what else about it? It's quite, as I read just that section, it's quite exciting. It, it's, it's sort of titillating and at the same time, you know, violent, this idea that, yeah. that every time a man has sex, he's inflicting damage. He's, he's yeah. creating a wound. Yeah. And again, but for that very short paragraph, you could relax. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But she puts in that short paragraph and you can't relax. So you say, you're right, it's titillating, but at the same time, it's violent and it's, you know, she makes you squirm. Yeah. In a way, I think it's maybe Nick's violence that drew her to him because she was about to leave when he told her the prison story or she was, you know, she he tells her that she wants to get up and walk away. But instead, she sits down and says, come to dinner. Can I make you dinner? So there's something in his willingness to do harm that draws her. And I, yeah. And it makes him interesting, doesn't it? Isn't that strange? Uh, I was in the company of a man who committed murder once myself and I wanted to like him. You know, it's weird. Now, it, it was in a prison and I was visiting, you know, and talking about writing with a group of people. And this man, I really wanted to like this guy. So I could come away thinking to myself, I met a murderer and I liked him. And, you know, when you think about it, how stupid is that in a way? <laughs> but it, it made him interesting in a way. Well, because th- you, you have to make this effort to understand. And I think that's perhaps what what Alina season mm-hmm. Nick is, is something she could yeah. work to figure out. And it's almost as well that this character from a TV drama has stepped out of the TV and it's, he's there in front of her because, you know, I don't know about you, but I would spend large chunks of my free time with my wife watching 
drama series about <laughs> murderers <laughs> and the unsuccessful attempts to catch the murderers and right. hoping that the murderer is so clever that the you know the feds never catch him and um so it has its uh, you know in terms of the story it has its appeal and then there he is right in front of her and perhaps also there's a feeling well he's lived a life right i know it's quite warped but the notion that somebody has lived a more fulfilling or a fuller life because he's murdered somebody as opposed to somebody who's just worked in a library. I know, you know, philosophically that won't take you very far, but on the <laughs> other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, it is, um, it makes a certain sense. It makes a human sense, I think. Yeah. But then when, when Nick actually kills something in front of her, she's just devastated by it, you know, when he hits that mm. bat with the tennis racket. Yeah. He's doing what he kind of felt he had to do. Yeah, what he thought she wanted him to do because mm. she was she was distressed by it. But well, you know, and then she's she's going on about is it a you know is it a blood sucking bat? What is it a vampire bat? And and yeah. you think back to those moments in her childhood when she was you know called Dracula yeah. and yeah, and also that moment where. Um, she corrects Nick on the correct term for sucking blood. It's supposed to be gnashing and lapping, you know, not, <laughs> not sucking. So there's there's clearly some kind of strange identification going on. For yeah, I would never query the rightness of anything that somebody from Transylvania <laughs> asserted, you know, in the line of, you know, on the subject of blood or bleeding or Removing the blood from somebody, I would never uh, say, "Are you sure?" I would, uh, I would accept it as truth. <laughs> but he thinks she's from Vermont, so and yes. he doesn't seem to ever have actually inquired beyond that very much. Except no, he, and he said originally yeah. that was original enough for him, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's interesting. Why didn't she tell him? Right, she's obviously yeah. told him what her father did, but I, I'm not sure that she's told him much beyond that. No, I think we'd. I think we'd. Somehow or other, we'd get that back from him if he knew. Yeah. So she's withheld that, I think. Right. You know, whereas I, I suspect that if I was, if I originated from Romania or Bulgaria or somewhere east of where I'm sitting at the moment, I would be telling everybody. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Especially when there's a bad about. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a, this kind of refrain of she missed her mother the most you know this this mm. line that keeps coming back in a, in a very haunting way and then mm-hmm. at the end she missed her mother the most but she sees her father's face and, she, and then she sees yeah. both parents you know up in the yeah. night sky why do you think we keep being reminded of this well she misses her mother the most at moments when she wants her mother when she'd rather be almost a little girl needing her mother. I suppose you'd wonder just how adult she has become Mm -hmm. and whether she can stand alone, you know. But she seems to miss her mother the most when she needs her or when not necessarily needs her, but literally going back to the word when she just, you know, she'd love her there when she's visiting the doctor. And you can see why. Yeah. What sort of news is she going to get? Why is she there? The mysterious world of the female body as well, you know. She's no companion there, right. you know, which is, uh, again, it's very sad. She's gone from, from imagining herself as as essentially a rapist to 
more or less being raped by a whole class of medical students. You know? well, I mean, that, that's yeah. just an excruciating scene. Yeah, and it's really, again, it's clever because, you know, that, I'm talking as a writer now. Um, I mean, it's just the doctor at first. And I suppose people of my generation would assume the doctor is male. Now, I don't know why, because, for example, my general practitioner is a woman. And any any dealings I've had with the medical profession over the last 20 years are overwhelmingly women. But there's something inbuilt that tells me this is a man. But then a few paragraphs in, the word, you know, the pronoun she is there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a woman. But then, you know, so you have to hear the lines differently. But there's a brutality to her, really. Yeah. You know, and the seven dwarfs come in, <laughs> you know, and they, she makes light of it. But... It just seems, you know, really, oh, beyond brutal, really, doesn't it? You know, seven. Yeah, seven of them seven. putting on their rubber gloves. Yeah, it reminds me of the, you know, clerical abuse stories almost that they, you know, that clearly one of them has behaved inappropriately and they're just rushed out. Yeah. Just rushed out. Now, we don't know whether the doctor follows it up and reprimands him or he's punished in any way or at least questioned about it. But um, from Alina's point of view, they're just all rushed out. Yeah. And the irony of that scene also is that after, you know, being harangued by Nick for not giving back to the community, the the doctor sort of harangues her and says, you know, give something back to the community. This is a teaching hospital. Help them learn, you know. Yeah. And you're getting this for nothing. So, you know, it's time to give something back, that awful phrase, you know, give something back. And this is what she is kind of bullied into giving back and herself. It's, it's really. her body. Yeah. Her integrity, yeah, her bodily integrity. It's, um, you know, the more the more we talk about the story, the more brilliant it seems to be and, you know, complicated and rough and beautifully yeah. honed and all sorts of things. Sort of brutal, brutal in ways mm. that you, you may not feel on the first read. Yes, and at the same time, comic, you know. Because oh, yeah, still it, hilariously funny in places. I mean, I, I have to laugh there's, at the way Laurie piles up the images, you know, that you think it mm-hmm. wouldn't, you it, it shouldn't really work. I'm thinking of that, that passage where she's talking about the moon in the daytime. And first it's a golf ball and then it's a calcified egg and then it's a coin face. Yeah. It's in a blue neighborhood of nothing. So many different metaphor similes shoved into one small paragraph just and to describe what the moon... she probably deleted another five or six. <laughs> <laughs> and it shouldn't work. And yet each time she brings up a new one, you see you yeah, see yeah. this moon slightly differently. Yes, and you just, oh, this, you know, it's a treat. It's like an extra, I don't know, an extra line in a song. You, aren't, you know, maybe a clever sh- uh, show tune that has a great lyric. And just when you think it's over... He or she comes back with another couplet or something that just makes you howl with laughter, you know, right, right. Uh, or, or smile at least. So it, 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 again, it's one of the reasons why I like reading uh, Laurie's work is because it's um, it's kind of it, nobody else writes like that as far as I'm aware. Right. I mean, I she must have to control that impulse when going through a story to, to start cutting away. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, this is what I do, I, I'd imagine, you know, this is. When I say what I do, I'm kind of imagining myself as her while she edits, you know, this is what I do. I, This is exactly as I want it. 
mm-hmm. you know, so it's neither too much nor too little. It's what it's, it's me, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I'm thinking happens. But I may be completely wrong. <laughs> There's also a, this kind of underlying motifs of, of sort of the natural world in the story. You know, this this idea that Olina's living constantly in terror of a tornado, that she's always looking for the tail of a tornado in the, in the sky. And there's these thunderstorms constantly. There's, you know, they're slamming the doors. and Yeah. She lived with one, you know, she had to grow up with the expectations of, you know, the, other, the children's expectations that she was a vampire, or, you know. And now she's moved to the Midwest where she daily expects a tornado because that's what you get, isn't it? When you're in the Midwest. (laughs) And yet she looks at Nick and and constantly he's got some strange form of pond life moving around in his (laughs) eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, as you know, as a reader, I was trying to see as an attractive feature, but I have a pond in my back garden and, you know, I wouldn't want to see it reflected in anyone's eyes, really. Right. You just sort of think of, of Daddy Longlegs skimming across the surface and so on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, tadpoles. Slightly disturbing. What do you think he he sees in her? He is drawn to her. He does, you know, go ahead and pursue her and he comes back to the library and then he, even after he's cheated on her, he tells her that he, he, he cares very much about what they have. Yeah, and, but it's almost a yeah. Sorry for cutting across that, but there's an almost vicious line where um, after he moves in with his tapes and his chair, that you know he also had problems with his lease. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that might be the first motive was to get a roof over his head. <laughs> but then she's not the narrator, but we're very close to her, and she's lovely. You know, mm-hmm. you'd love to share time with her because she's funny. And she sees the world in a way that's a bit different. And she's eccentric, which, you know, is, is, is often quite an attractive thing. Mm-hmm. I can understand why one would want to be with her, so to speak. I can well understand it. Yeah. And she doesn't run when he when he talks about his history and his, his prison time. No. She even offers to buy him a bun. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do better than that. <laughs> It's almost he throws that out as a challenge early on just to make sure she'll she'll stick around through it. Yeah. It's a great line as well because, I, you know, there's something, I don't know, the word bun. I wasn't even aware <laughs> it was used in, um, it's not really, in you know, the it's, US, I you know. So again, it's, a, it's her translated, I don't right. know what she had in mind, a, a muffin or something perhaps. But yeah, uh, yeah a bun, it's a comical word, whatever way you use it. Right. It's it's just her way of, of leaving an awkward moment, but then she comes back to it. Do you think that, that Olina can be part of a community in a sense, that she can do what everyone is trying to get her to do? Well, she already does, doesn't she, in a way, in a quiet way. She works in a library, so she performs a terrific service for the community already, in a way, and she has her friends, or her not her friends, but her colleagues, so I think she does perform that role, but it's not... I think what he means is out and about and loud and yeah. glad, you know, glad-handing and back-slapping. And, uh, and that's, you know, a room full of people like that. It's pretty dreadful, really. It's also, you know, interesting. She never became this, this American girl that her parents envisioned, you know. She was only... Yeah. She was, she's Nell who never lived. She was... She, yeah. 
held on to this outsider-ish name yeah. and, and status. Yeah. Did they really want to see a kind of a Doris Day-type daughter? Possibly, but then what would they have lost? And then they die anyway, so it's... Yeah, yeah. Well, they yeah. have, you know, visions of her accomplishing the... the or making this transition to being part of a, a new community that they yes. will never quite join. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, you know, we read a lot of uh, older stories on this podcast, but this was, and this one's from 91, it's not, it's not all that long ago, but I did find myself feeling how radically different the story would be now, mm-hmm. now that there's an internet and, and online communities and social yes. outlets that Alina probably would have been part of. Yes, but also Nick wouldn't have walked into the library needing her help. Exactly. He would have found those statistics on <laughs> Google. no story. Yeah. And um, I mean, so many... It must be hell to write crime fiction these days, you know, when um, with mobile phones, you know, or <laughs> cell phones. And I know the whole nature of circumstantial evidence has changed. There are several recent murder cases here in Ireland where men were convicted of murder on circumstantial evidence, whereas I remember one of the the great cliches of, you know, fictional crime when I was a kid, that it was only circumstantial evidence, that it was never enough. But now it is because of the phone records that you're, if you're carrying a phone around, you're carrying your life around and where you were at a certain time, at a certain, you know, on a certain day. So um, it closes down all sorts of possibilities, doesn't it? Right. Uh, and all sorts of tensions. Will he turn up? Won't she turn up? You know, all you have to do is text and you get an answer and ugh, it's boring, <laughs> you know. So the story, in a way, would have to be very different if, uh, if if it was written even, what, eight or nine years after it actually was written. Right. She'd have she'd have found her virtual community and that'd be yeah, that. Yeah, and, and so would he. So she might have. It would be a different story. They wouldn't have needed each other. No. Well, they would, but they wouldn't be aware of that. well thank you so much Roddy thank you it was a pleasure Laurie Moore is the author of five story collections and three novels including Who Will Run the Frog Hospital and A Gate at the Stairs her most recent story collection Bark was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award she's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1989 Roddy Doyle is the author of two story collections The Deportees and Other Stories and Bullfighting as well as 11 novels for adults, including Patty Clark, Ha Ha Ha, which won the Booker Prize in 1993, and eight children's books. His most recent novel, Smile, was published in 2017. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Laurie Moore reads Antonia Nelson's story, Naked Ladies, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>